0: Listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness.
1: This is uh, Mark Varelas, and today we're going to be interviewing Norman Fisher um, on a book that he wrote called "Taking Our Places: The Buddhist Path to Truly Growing Up." So, yes, thanks. So, thanks for joining us today, Norman. My
0: pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Um, so yeah, this book is, is is really lovely. I really enjoyed it. You you just write in a way that makes um, Buddhism and Zen just really accessible to, to everyday people. Um, well, that's certainly how I felt when I read it. Oh, I'm so glad. That so, was the idea. That was the hope. <laughs> well, it is, definitely. Um, so it's based on a on a real-life experience. Maybe you could tell us about that and and how that inspired you to write the book.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, um, I was avid of the San Francisco Zen Center at the time, and uh, a few of the families at the Zen Center had uh, adolescent boys, and they felt a need for those boys to have a a rite of passage ceremony of some kind. Mm -hmm. And uh, they knew that uh, Judaism has bar mitzvahs, and there are other kinds of things in other traditions, and they thought, well, what does Western Buddhism have to offer, and would I take up the challenge and see if I could do something? So I said, well, what a great idea. I never would have thought of that. So I I, uh, met with the four boys, and we kind of, little by little, as we went along, created a process. That ended up to be, you know, very satisfying for them and really interesting for me. And then after it was over, everybody was so taken with it that they said, "You've got to write about this. More people have to know about this." And, and that's how come I wrote the book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. So, so really, what does the what is the book about?
0: Well, you know, it evolved uh, as I as I uh, tried to write it. I mean, at first, I thought it would be a kind of a handbook for someone who wanted to do this process but then it didn't really seem to be going very well on that basis and so I eventually came around to the idea that well what the book was really about was uh, how spiritual practice is a process of coming to maturity that we're all trying to grow up you know that's that's human life you know to try to be a grown up and uh and so uh, I realized that, that practice that I was doing with these boys was uh, just one instance of a wider question. So I actually ended up using the work that I did with the boys as a frame uh, around uh, a book that really is about spiritual maturity, or I should say spiritual practice as practice of maturity. So it's a, it has a wider application than uh, just somebody who might want to do one of these programs with young people, although... If you follow through the book, it does tell you how, how we did it and how you could do it yourself. So it sort of serves two purposes.
1: Yeah, yeah, that comes across quite clearly, actually, through it? Through Oh, that's
0: good. Because um, it was a long struggle getting getting yeah. there. I went through many false starts. You know, It was pretty frustrating, but eventually it all became clear.
1: Yeah, no, there's certainly that the story element of it, but then with instruction as well. So it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, good. So what did you le- what did you learn really with with at one point you're you're talking to the boys and you're attempting to answer that question uh, what what is true maturity um, what what answers did you come up with
0: well uh, it was really interesting because in a way you know I had never really thought of that before I'd never thought of spiritual practice as being a process of maturing. But one of the things I learned was that yeah, that really is true. You know, that, that's what I learned from the from the process. But then, as far as you know, what is maturity? Well, that of course is a is a really sensitive and complicated uh, question because you know you can't really say this is what maturity is. These five points. You know, mm-hmm. if you have these things, you're mature. Uh, it's because it's more uh, a matter of showing up you know can you really show up for your life can you really be responsible can you really express yourself can you really let yourself be surprised and learn and grow because you know maturity is not an end point right I mean it's it's an ongoing process we never come to uh, the, the end point of maturing we're always growing more and more so it was really I guess in the end the willingness to pay attention to listen to take other people seriously, to take yourself seriously, and to grow and develop and show up for your life. That ended up to be what we were talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah, and at some point you say that, and and certainly this was true for me, that people think maturity is just, it just happens as you age. Right, right. And it's actually a very different, it's actually a very different process that you describe in the book.
0: Right. It's a surprising thing because I think people do think that. They think, well, you know, I'm such and such an age and I have a bank account, you know, and maybe I have a relationship, (laughs) maybe I even have children, Um, I have a responsible job. And, of course, all those things are um, avenues for maturing. Yes. You know, they help us. They give us opportunities to mature, but they don't necessarily guarantee that we will be mature. I mean, there are people who... Uh, you know, are elderly and haven't ever grown up, right? So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so it, it's it's really something that we have to engage, not just assume that it happens automatically.
1: Yeah. Did Did you find anything out about your own maturity? Did it raise any interesting questions or insights for you?
0: Yeah, because uh, you know, I, I was, as I said, I was the abbot of a of a Zen community, and uh, in a certain way, uh, having been in that position, being in that position. You know, you could assume a certain sort of level of uh, of respect and credibility and maturity, Mm -hmm. as if you would assume that the abbot of a big temple complex is a mature, spiritually developed person. But in a certain way, these boys were not that impressed by that.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) They they had questions that that were real questions, and they. they weren't willing to just sort of sit still and let me say, well, this is the way it is. You know, they yeah. were, they were probing and they were, they, you know, there was, there were challenges there. I think, uh, adolescents present challenges that are more challenging in many ways than, than adults present to you, especially when you're somebody with a, with a position that assumes, uh, authority. So it's, it's what I learned was that I, that to really be, uh, to really do my practice and really be a mature person. I had to drop all my pretensions and all my assumptions and mm-hmm. really just sort of face what was given to me and, and, and deal with it on its own terms. And that was really a big help to me, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So you, so the book kind of outlines these the practices that support maturity. Um, could you just give mm-hmm. us an, an overview of what those, those practices are?
0: Sure. I mean, uh, you know, and I... Uh, again, as I was organizing the book I was trying to figure out how to way to a way to make some of this stuff accessible and clear. Mm-hmm. So I'm not proposing these as uh you know, eternal practices or so. maturity. I'm just saying that this is the way and one one good way of looking at it. So uh you could really it follows through more or less the, the chapters of the book. The first one is listening mm-hmm. and uh and this is the ability to really and truly drop your point of view at least long enough to listen to another person, which requires, uh, it turns out, quite a bit, you know, to actually be able to listen to someone and pay attention to them and, and take fully take in what they're, what they're presenting and let yourself go. So listening was the first practice. Persistence was the second one. And that, you know, involves virtues like, uh, you know, royalty and staying with something and, and not being distracted, not, not turning away, staying with something when it's hard. Uh, not letting your anger or your resistance, you know, push you around, but just staying in the game. Mm-hmm. So persistence is the second one. And the fifth one, uh, I mean, the third one is uh, is connection, uh, by which I mean open-heartedness, emotional availability, uh, the ability to uh, really take in another person's uh, heart and to soften your own so that you're not sort of stubbornly Mm -hmm. Only going your own way, but willing to change and grow as you encounter other people. So that that involves connection to others and to yourself. So the third one is connection. And the fourth one is uh, meditation. Mm -hmm. And uh, by this I mean literally meditation practice, but even more widely uh, mindfulness. You know, being having a sort of presence with your emotional life and your intellectual life and non-judgmental awareness. And uh, the next one is is vowing, Mm -hmm. commitment, really, making a commitment. I I think maturing really does depend on commitment. I think when you think of the typical person who, you know, we don't think is a mature person, it's usually someone who flips around through life, who has never made a commitment, who, uh, you know, is a tourist in their own life. And you can be a tourist in your own life for for decades, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, vowing. Is, uh, is a pretty strong word, but, but it means, you know, commitment, explicit commitment and sticking with a commitment. And, and the last one is uh, conduct, mm-hmm. by which I mean paying attention to your actions of body, speech, and mind, uh, not just speaking the way you feel like it at any given occasion, but thinking of others and thinking of right speech and uh, everything you do. You You, you include the vastness of the universe and the reality of others as part of the way you conduct yourself. And and eventually, we hope that for a mature person, that doesn't mean uh, second-guessing everything they do as much as it means having a spontaneous and easy way of conducting oneself that automatically takes the universe and others into account. In other words, it doesn't mean constraining yourself all the time, but rather... Uh, smoothly and easily living in the world, but in such a way that you're not self-centered and you're not yeah. forgetting about others.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. It's that being able to not overthink it, but still... Exactly, because I think that does work. happen, right? It does happen. Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually a master of that, Norman. <laughs> <I've>
0: over- <laughs> 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 yeah, well, I find that that is a, that, in, in a certain way, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I don't think that you should complain to yourself about that, that no. we should complain no. about it, because it's kind of, in a way, it's it's some a stage we have to pass through, yes. I mean, because uh, it's becoming more thoughtful in, in our conduct, especially if we start out with not being so thoughtful, we're going to definitely overthink it. Uh, at first, and that probably is unavoidable and uh, maybe even a good thing, but eventually we'd like to get to the place where we don't have to be thinking and deliberating so much about everything we do, but rather just living freely and easily, but in a way that's um,
1: not so centered. Yeah, that's very interesting, because there's definitely a, a theme through the book where there's a lot of hope, but there's also the other side of that, that we are human, and, and as humans, and and you even say at one point, Buddhism is the practice of failure.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, lately uh, one of my sayings has been, um, all of Buddhism comes down to one thing, don't make things worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, uh, there are going to be, that. that's how it is, being human in, in this crazy world, is yeah. there are going to be disasters, some of which will disappear and some of which we ourselves may cause uh without knowing we're we're going to do that and so the practice really is when that happens to us when there is a disaster let's know how to face it and deal with it and not make it worse because i think Mm -hmm. we typically do make it worse right we flail around in all kinds of ways and take sick of that situation and make it worse if only we could not make things worse we would be way ahead of the game that would be a lot right there
1: yeah yeah that's a good point so in your, um... But,
0: yeah, I mean, yeah, I am in the book, and, and in all my books, I, I am very realistic, you know, mm-hmm. about the practice. In other words, yeah. I think one of my chief thoughts is how idealistic spiritual practice can be. Proposing, uh, and it's wonderful, you know, to, to propose, you know, kind of human perfection uh, as mm-hmm. a goal and a horizon. But uh, that can also be counterproductive and oppressive, you know. We can be constantly derating ourselves for not being perfect Buddhists. Yeah. So I think that spiritual practice in the end really is for human beings, and human beings are always imperfect. So we have to take that into account and put
1: that front and center. Yeah, it's funny. I've been, when I was reading the book, I was trying to find the right words to describe it, and I think it's, uh, it's hopeful but practical, your approach.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, We, we can. We, we certainly can go. If perfection is a horizon, we can certainly go in that direction. Mm-hmm. And so that's the hope. Yeah. But the realism is we never get there.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> just <laughs> no. like when you're in a boat, you know, you, yeah. you sail out to toward the horizon and you are going somewhere. Yeah. And yet you never reach the horizon.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's just something about enjoying that.
0: Yes, that's right. It's a beautiful ride. Exactly. Yeah.
1: In the in the um the chapter on persistence, um, one thing that mm-hmm. really interested me is is you talked about Really, the practice of persistence is turning towards the opposite, as it is it's in so many when you're trying to develop a quality. So, in this case, it was turning towards frustration. Right. So, so I, I mean, I'm like a lot of people. I get quite frustrated from time to time. How do yeah. You, how, do I you know. actu- how do you actually do that in your day to day life?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think it has. Uh, I would say maybe the one way to look at it is it has a. Uh, an intellectual component and an almost physical component. Mm-hmm. The intellectual component is really reflecting on, and, you know, so my, my discussion of of persistence and its relationship to frustration is one such way of reflecting, you know, thinking about the re- the fact that it really is true that when you are frustrated, you immediately fly off the handle and you immediately kind of give up and grouse and complain, and that that mm-hmm. pattern only ensures that there'll be more frustration uh, at that moment and also in the future. So to understand that point and be able to identify and have that thought, whenever frustration comes up, instead of doing what comes naturally, so to speak, we interpose the thought, oh yeah, here's frustration, and I know now, because I've thought about it, I know what this means, and I know where this is going. Yes. So that's one thing, but that, that won't be enough in and of itself. The next thing is to be able to have the capacity to physically, um, stop yourself and literally take a breath, literally take a breath Mm -hmm. and notice that you're going to breathe anyway, but notice that you're breathing Mm -hmm. and notice the feeling of your body in the moment of frustration. You probably notice, that there's tension, you know, around the eyes and in the jaw mm-hmm. and in the, in the shoulders in the chest, uh, you can feel your body without even knowing that it's happening. You can feel your body reacting to that moment of frustration. And once you return awareness to your body in that moment, you have actually cut off the pathway toward making it worse. And you're now just aware of the frustration. It's very unpleasant, but it's that unpleasantness that, it, that you need to slow down the process. And then little by little, you roll it back until so you get to the yeah. place where it's automatic for you that as soon as a frustrating uh, event occurs, you're automatically paying attention and you're not going down that path of, uh, you know, kind of uh, lashing out or, yeah. you know, complaining in your own mind or whatever it is that we all do when we're frustrated.
1: Yeah, certainly in my own sort of life, I I know, and it, it actually came out from the book for me is that the first thing I do is blame someone. But it, it something yeah, you said, right. right <laughs> but the, that something and that, you, and
0: that doesn't help at all, does it? No, it doesn't. <laughs>
1: no. no, but but something you just said there is that it's that but turning towards your body, almost losing it as an antenna, it's, it's it's really unpleasant. But it is really effective. That's right. Yeah, and,
0: and and that's why you know that's why we fly off the handle. Yeah, because. It's actually an avoidance mechanism. You know, if something mm. frustrating happens to me and then I lash out at you, in a way, I, I have relieved myself of the responsibility of actually feeling the very unpleasant feeling of having just been thwarted, you know, in something that I wanted to do. Yes. And now I feel good, at least temporarily, because now I asserted my power. When I'm frustrated, I'm powerless. But when mm. I chew you out, you know, now I'm powerful.
1: Yes. Of course. Sure. <laughs> yeah,
0: of course. This is really—it's an illusion because you know what I've done now is I've alienated you and, I, and I've hurt you and, I, and I've also hurt myself and I've reinforced this bad habit of avoiding the experience of frustration and, and in doing that I've actually made the frustration worse and furthermore ensured that um, I'll have that reaction many many times again. Mm. So yes, it's unpleasant, but that's why persistence is, is, the, is necessary because you really have to have the fortitude to turn toward the feeling of frustration, Mm -hmm. which is unpleasant, and bear it with some intellectual understanding and some faith that that is the path Mm -hmm. toward reducing frustration.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think there's some connection there now as well to what they're learning about the brain and the fact that you you can, not rewire, but you're changing your patterns in your brain by doing that. You're becoming more mindful and and turning a different way of, of dealing with that. So.
0: Absolutely, that's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah, the yeah. the, the uh, in a way, all these brain studies are uh, making it just crystal clear that absolutely. these teachings uh, really, really do work, and they really yeah. and, they, and they have a physical basis really in the brain.
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So on on your in your chapter on connection, um, you tell a story about a friend of yours who's a psychologist, and she works with or psychotherapist. She works with um, people who are uh, over eighty, and the biggest theme of these people is complaining about their parents um about things <laughs> yeah, that were done that's to them something. yeah i was i was really surprised and 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 really yeah. in, in that chapter one of the biggest elements of that chapter is you're saying that forgiving our parents is is one of the most important steps in this sort of path to maturity what what makes that so right. important yeah what makes that so important well
0: <clears throat> it's interesting i mean <sighs> You know, uh, we all think, we all have a very kind of linear, two-dimensional, or maybe one-dimensional sense of time. You know, my parents were in my life, you know, many, many years ago. I've gone through a lot of, you know, things since then. They're far in the distance. You know, why, you know, that's long past. Why would I think about that? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But the truth is that, uh, and I think psychology, you know, does certainly bear this out, that that our early experiences are, um, sort of indelibly inscribed on our psyche. And, uh, even though it would appear that we cannot change the past, in fact, we can change the past by our present engagement. Mm-hmm. Because the past is just, you know, our present interpretation of it. If I have a radically different interpretation, or understanding, or feeling in my body of what my past has been, mm. then my past actually is different, and that changes how I am in the present. So I think that most of us, you know, forget about our parents and go on to other things. But the reality is that the deep patterns ingrained in our bodies and in our hearts by early experiences become the limitations mm-hmm. of what we can do going forward, and we don't know that. And I think that, uh, in fact, I think not only do older people uh, have, you know, deep thoughts and feelings about their parents when they're in their 80s and 90s, -hmm. but I think they have more thoughts and feelings about their parents than they did when they were in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. -hmm. Because I think that at that point in life, this early conditioning becomes all to apparent and becomes even more immediate than than ever.
1: Yeah, that's... So, and
0: forgiveness... Yeah? yeah.
1: Go on, sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying, it's really interesting because my father turned seventy last year, and he he had quite a difficult um, upbringing, and he's a very thoughtful man, very smart man, and um, his parents are obviously gone now, and and some of these things have come up for him. Where where would you point yeah. him to? You know, especially because he can't reconcile that with them now. Where where would you point him to 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 face that?
0: Well, you know, uh, it doesn't depend on your parents being alive.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It doesn't matter if your parents are alive or not. In some ways, it's easier <laughs> than alive, because sometimes if they've wounded you, they continue to do so, you know, even in their old age, and, and opening up the wound over and over again yeah. makes it harder. So, uh, no, forgiveness is, a, is an internal process, mm-hmm. and it is a process of, of maturing. Because, uh, what it requires really is, uh, and again, persistence is, is very important in this, in this practice as well. What it requires is that you let yourself be aware of and really feel the pain. Mm. And in a way, it's counterintuitive. Like, you know, at, at age 70, your father might say, well, but that pain is very, very old by now. Mm -hmm. nevertheless, in meditation practice or in reflection or in journaling or somehow if you just turn your heart to it, you can actually see that the pain is still there and still pretty immediate. Mm -hmm. And you open yourself to it. And maybe you haven't opened yourself to it for many decades. Mm -hmm. But you you make a process of opening yourself to that pain and just feeling it. And through feeling the pain and exploring it and being willing to stay still for it, you eventually will come to the place where you'll understand that your parents and this goes for anyone who's hurt you, they did what they did out of their ignorance and out of their own pain mm. and out of their own confusion that that's what caused them to do what they did even if they did what they did apparently quite intentionally or if they did it for their own apparently for their own advantage uh, even even so the reason for that ultimately, is their own ignorance, their own pain. And they themselves, you can see quite clearly, have had to reap the consequences of that. And so you, you see all that through the exploration of your own pain. And when you see all that, your heart just falls open and you forgive.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so you can say the words, you know, I forgive you to yourself, mm. uh, that your parents or anybody else that you're forgiving doesn't even have to be there and sometimes, you know, if somebody's a really rotten person, <laughs> and there are such people, yeah, are. Yep. you don't want to, yeah, you don't want to say to them, I forgive you. You're off, because mm-hmm. then they think, oh, good, I'm off the hook. Yeah. Uh, but in your but in your heart, you want to say that you want because you don't want to be forever the victim. Yeah. Of their bad conduct, even if they deserve to be punished in some way for it by going to jail or yeah. who knows what, uh, you yourself don't want to remain the victim.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's something about that when you—I mean, with anyone—if you have a, a conflict and you want them to do something a certain way, maybe there's there's something about the not just dealing with that in your own in your own way with yourself. I guess I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah, that's right. Because you don't want to give other people the power mm-hmm. to hold your heart hostage forever and ever, right? Yes. Yeah. In other words, unless you do the following things, I will forever be resentful. Yes. Well, now you've got the power over my resent- resentment, and oh. I'll be resentful for the rest of my life, and I'm happy, yeah. and I'm depending on you to change that. Well, that's no good.
1: Yeah, 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 it's very interesting. It is, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it really is. It, when I was reading it, it, just, it was just a different way of looking at, um, at things that maybe I hadn't even thought about before, so... So, yeah, So in, in your, um, your discussion of meditation and, and mindfulness, um, it seems like that's a real, fun, one of the fundamental practices. It, I, Absolutely, I, yeah. Yeah, and you know, we, we live, um, this is one of the things I liked about the book being very accessible. You know, I, I, I'm a professional, I work 40 hours a week, um, there are, I have commitments in my life, and I've, I've tried to grow my own mindfulness practice. Um, I try to sit for 20 minutes pretty much every day. Um, Oh, that's beautiful. So what is the the level of practice, though? One thing I was wondering, what's the level of practice that really brings the benefits um, that you speak of in the book? And and what would those benefits Mm be? Mm
0: -hmm. Well, uh, I think that uh, this is being really practical now, talking Mm -hmm. about somebody like yourself, who is a professional, has commitments, maybe a family and so on. mm -hmm. I think that if you sit, uh, every day, and that doesn't mean that you don't miss some days, but basically Mm -hmm. you have a daily sitting practice that's maybe 30 30 minutes a day. First thing in the morning, I think is the best time. Mm -hmm. If, uh, you attend a, um, a group in your local area that maybe sits together once a week, uh, because I think that, um, I think we want to avoid the feeling that meditation practice is a private, personal affair. Mm-hmm. Because really, really it isn't, you know, and I think when you sit with others regularly, even if you can't do that too frequently, but you, on a regular basis, and you have relationships with people uh, who are based on that practice, it takes meditation out of the realm of inside your own head and makes it clear that it's not just about inside your own head, it's about your being in the world and in life. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's valuable to go to a group once a week, and you get somehow, in some uh, wordless, non-conceptual way, you just get feedback from that group, and just the way it feels and the way other people feel, and some of the things that they'll say casually about their practice will be very influential for you. So that's important. Having a teacher or teachings, and nowadays, you know, there's so much great stuff available on websites mm-hmm. and, you know, internet for download. Or in almost every city, you can go and visit a teacher or you can travel to a city once a year for a retreat and visit teachers. And all the better if you uh, go to the same teacher more than once and you you know that teacher knows you and you know yeah. him or her. So in other words, if you have all that, if you have your daily sitting, uh, your um, communal sitting regularly, your teachings, your teacher... Your annual, let's say, longer retreat that might be three to five days or more. Doesn't have to be, you know, six months. It can be mm-hmm. a week, uh, or three days of uh, silent retreat. Yeah. And then the most important thing of all is an active sense that you're applying your awareness and your mindfulness to your everyday encounters. Every time you speak and do things, you're aware of your practice. Mm-hmm. So I think if you do all of that, and this is really doable. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's oh, something yes. you have to, in, yeah, you have to intend to do it. I mean, it's not a small thing, mm-hmm. but it is doable, even with a family, a career, and so on. If you do all that, I think that you'll see that uh, you're in a process that really is working. And it's an endless process, so it's not, mm-hmm. you know, get come to the end of it or feel like you're finished with it. But it's an interesting process for its own sake. And you enjoy it, and you see the fruits of it in your life. And so, I think some program like that really is going to work. And when you think about the many spiritual groups that there are all over the place, more or less, that's what they do. You know, mm-hmm. that that is how they work.
1: Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's really good advice. Actually, there's a few things in there that I'll I'll take on definitely. It's um. One thing Beautiful. Someone said to me about when I first started was uh, you get to a point where. You'll realize you're stuck in a telephone box with a crazy person, and that and that person <laughs> and is you. you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And I think that's kind of where I am right that's, now that's with my a great image. I love that. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, I think that's where I've reached right now, and I'm sort of ready for the next part where we get... Yeah, but it's uh... yeah,
0: because I think I think that there is the concept, you know, that spiritual practice is a personal, private matter.
1: Yeah, I think we do
0: have that concept, and I think that. Uh, I mean, in some ways, it's true. I mean, you know, it's it's. Pers- I mean, spiritual practice is not a social, yeah. it's not a social thing. Or, but at the at the same time, spiritual practice is exactly getting out of that telephone box. That's yes. exactly what it's yeah. about. Is can you can you go beyond your self concern and your self centeredness and your self referentiality? And so, in order to do that, you have to have that some interaction with others uh, is necessary. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like, it's surprising how much, how important that interaction can be and how fruitful it can be when it's basically based on being silent together. Yes. That's the counterintuitive thing. You know? Yes. In other words, you can be with a community of people, and basically the way you relate to those people is you sit down next to them in silence. Yeah. Right? That's the main thing you're doing with them. Yeah. And yet, that by itself will change the way you are and change the way you look at your practice.
1: Yes, yeah, it's certainly, I think that I've, I've read before and listen when when you get up um, from the meditation, it's that point when the practice begins because you begin to see that yeah. mindfulness. You you suddenly have a choice how you react, say, to frustration. Um, That's, right. It's, That's right. It's kind of an interesting process. It
0: is, it is.
1: In the... Um, in the chapters on vowing and conduct, um, you talk about these 16, um, I might get the word wrong here, but his bodhis, Bodhisapha. Um, that's right, precepts. Um, what, as, as a kind of lay person as, as I am, what are some examples of some vows um, that I could commit to, and, and how would I go about that? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, uh, that's a beautiful a good good question. You know, I was just talking to a couple the other day who uh, wanted me to perform a wedding ceremony for them. And they didn't want to, uh, you know, they don't belong to any particular religion. So they didn't feel comfortable with those 16 Bodhisattva precepts or any other vows or precepts. So I said to them, well, what do you value? What's really important to you? Why are you getting married in the first place? What is this about? Yeah. And so uh, I had a conversation with them about that, and out of that conversation came a series of vows that really made sense to them. They never thought of them before as vows, mm-hmm. uh, but in the, ma- in the marriage ceremony, I think that they'll take those vows and um, they'll make conscious and maybe uh, an article for practice and intentional cultivation, things that they have already felt that they value. So, for instance, um, you know, if you value honesty, you know, you could vow uh, to yourself to, Mm -hmm. I I will, I vow to practice honesty uh, in my Thinking about myself and about my life and in my speech with others. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Uh, kindness. You know, I would like to be a kinder person. I think kindness is a tremendous uh, virtue. Yeah. And uh, if I were consciously vowing to be kind, I think I would be more kind. I would remember more often. So I vow to be <laughs> kind in my words and in my deeds mm-hmm. <clears throat> and even in the way I think so uh that's a good start, you know honesty, kindness mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I think basically one could just take those two commitments, make them intentional and explicit,
1: yeah.
0: use them as a measuring uh stick for your conduct, and you'd be doing a lot of spiritual practice
1: yeah i I like that because it's not you're not. Swallowing the ocean, you know. I I read them. I was like, there's sixteen. I don't think I can do all of these. But I like that you're saying that you, you can <laughs> right, shrink right. it to some quite simple ones that that are important to that's you. That's right. Yeah, that's
0: right. And that, and that in itself is kind of a wonderful. I mean, to think about that. The idea of uh, getting together with friends, let's say, and you know, who are minded in this in this way, and say, let's let's get together and talk, and let's each one of us make our own list of three or four commitments, spiritual commitments that we would like to make and we would like to encourage each other in these commitments yeah. would be interesting, wouldn't it? And, and I think it would be very um, affirming and reinforcing for each person.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny that you say the, the kindness is one, because I think all the way through the book, um, it seems to be if there's one skill, there's one practice, it's loving kindness and, and yeah. it's really the the. If you're going to pick one, that's a really good one. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, you start the book um, with a really nice quote from Martin uh, Buber, where you say, "All real living is meeting," um, and you, mm-hmm. you come back to it many times. Um, in in particular, in the afterward. can you tell us what this means in the in the context of taking our places?
0: Well. It's actually, uh, the way I understand it, a very profound thought about who and what we really are as human beings. Mm -hmm. In a way, you know, there's no such thing as a human being, you know, in outer space, apart from the Earth and apart from other human beings and other living creatures, we can, we can say that. We can say there's a human being that could be separate from everything. But in reality, this is impossible. There cannot be a human being separate from other things. So in other words, our, that is our life. Our life is every moment we're meeting something. We're meeting uh, thought in our minds. We're meeting uh, the language that comes from others that's in our own minds in that thought. We're meeting the air, air. we're meeting the ground, Mm -hmm. we're meeting another person, we're meeting um, a tree, we're meeting the grass, we're meeting the food we're eating now. In other words, we're always in a moment of encounter, and that moment of encounter creates us in that moment. And our lives, we're always changing and developing based on the encounters that we're having moment after moment after moment all throughout our lives from the first moment when another human being is pulling us out of the womb of another human being who our yes. mother to the moment when uh, human beings are washing our bodies and the life has left it and they're putting us in the ground. Hmm. So we're always um, in in relationship with something, someone at every moment. And to realize that and to kind of drop the alienating fiction that we're on we're on our own we're apart mm-hmm. uh, and to give ourselves to that moment of encounter more intentionally and more fruitfully and come with more kindness and more beauty mm-hmm. that's the way to live and so I think Buber was really onto something there and, and it 's a beautiful um, reading of uh, religious life and all of life
1: yeah there's something in that every every meeting is a chance for from For enlightenment for to grow it to, is it and, is, yeah, and you make the point at the end of the book actually that this isn't something you can do on your own. this is something you have to do with other people,
0: yeah, that's right, and that that's the beauty of it, you know our connection, I mean in other words, it's well that, that's about, it's about love, right and, and yeah. love is the way that we awaken to what we are and who we are. I mean mm-hmm. a human being is a creature that is made to love and be loved. And uh, we suffer a lot if we don't feel that love. Yeah. And so that's our spiritual journey is to, to find a way of uh, really loving so that we can really be ourselves.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Norman, for, for, for writing the book, uh, firstly. You're it's welcome. Just, it
0: was it's, my pleasure.
1: It really, as I say, you, you have a real um, way of describing these practices that really relates and resonates to to people like me who, who, who are beginning and really beginning to explore this kind of topic. so.
0: Well, oh, I really appreciate it. I'm so glad you enjoyed the book. That's great.
1: You're welcome. And I'm really grateful to, to get a chance to speak to you today. Um, thanks very much. We really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.